My brothers and sisters, you should know that whoever brings a sinner back from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Full stop. There are no more verses after that one. That is the end of the letter of James. It's kind of sudden, isn't it? I don't know how you typically end a letter that you're writing, but I usually try to wrap up with something friendly, wishing the other person well, or saying I hope to see him or speak with him again soon. I try to bring things to a close somehow. Paul's letters often have that feeling at the end. He sends little shout outs to people he knows and misses in the church that he's writing to. He passes along greetings from other communities. Often he closes with a benediction, a stately sort of blessing like we might use at the end of a worship service, and he ends with a great big amen. You know the letter is finished. There's no question about it. But the letter of James doesn't end that way. It just sort of stops without any chit-chat, any fanfare, with this call to watch out for one another, to bring back the wandering. Full stop. End of story. On the one hand, maybe we shouldn't be all that surprised that it ends that way. We've noted that James is a letter without a lot of context. Questions about who wrote it and when and to whom are sort of all up for discussion. And we've seen all along over the past weeks that this letter is full of admonitions, calls to not just sit there thinking about what a faithful life looks like, but to do it already to put one foot in front of the other in living out the immeasurable grace that we have been given in Christ. So maybe it's totally natural for this letter to end in this way, without any fluff or flowery language, with one more summons to action, one more way to put our faith into practice. I get that. And yet, I don't know about you, but this conclusion to the letter felt like a bit of a letdown to me at first. In our reading last week from the previous chapter of James, he set these two paths before us. Either choose to be friends of God, he said, or friends of the world. It was a very stark choice, the way James put it. A choice between gentle wisdom and kindness, on the one hand, and envy, leading to squabbles and mistrust and even murder on the other. It wasn't that much of a secret which way James wanted us to choose, right? Leave behind the wisdom of the world, he said, with great forcefulness and power, and choose the wisdom of God. Let this way be your life. Here at the end of the letter, James isn't talking about the way of the world anymore. He's talking to his listeners about this better way of friendship with God that he wants them so passionately to follow. He said a whole lot about that other sort of friendship already, so I was ready for the flip side here. I was ready to hear more about this rich and beautiful and life-giving friendship of walk with God that he'd been describing. And I guess I was expecting to hear about sort of heroic acts of protest against the death-dealing structures that ensnare the world in envy, or about radical acts of solidarity with the poor, or about a whole new pattern for community life something big and bold and flashy for all of us to go out and do. And what does James talk about? Prayer. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with prayer. It just seems so ordinary, so common, so totally unflashy. 
I mean, everyone knows about this already, James. Everybody knows that prayer is a good thing and we should do it in all circumstances. But doesn't that seem a little thin, a little flimsy as a way of countering that vicious and powerful monster called envy, that worldly wisdom that keeps us all isolated and unfulfilled and stuck in perpetual competition? At the conclusion of this profound and searching letter with all that's at stake, that's where you want to end? With prayer? That's sort of how I felt about this ending of the letter through much of this past week. But James replied to my grumps with unflinching certainty. Yes, he said, as a matter of fact, prayer is exactly where I want to end, and I have a perfectly good reason for it. So listen up. To begin with, James has great confidence in the effectiveness of prayer. It's immensely powerful, he says. It's something that can really make a difference in your life and in the lives of those around you and in the world. Just look at Elijah, he says. He was a human being just like us. James doesn't say that he was also a prophet and sort of part superhero, but never mind that. He prayed, and look at everything that it accomplished. The heavens closed at his command, and at his command they opened up again. Prayer is a powerful tool, so make use of it. That's certainly part of it for James, but it's not everything. Because wholly apart from the concrete results that might come from prayer, whether we get exactly what we ask for or not, it does accomplish something deeply significant. Prayer draws a community together. Did you notice that? It is all over this passage. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. It sounds like such a normal, churchy thing to say, but don't miss what a strange and radical thing James is proposing. There are actually two calls here, two calls aimed at drawing a community together in a world that would rather tear it apart. The first call is to the one who is sick. Don't be alone in your misery, James says. Reach out and ask the church to come and be with you. My guess is that that command wasn't any easier for people in James's time to hear than it is for people in ours. In a moment of vulnerability like that, when the health of your body or your mind or your spirit is threatened, for so many of us, the natural response is to isolate, to hole up, to really keep to ourselves. We don't like to ask others to help us. We don't like to admit that we are in need. We don't like to be the one being cared for. And yet that's exactly what James invites us to do, to call for others to be with us, to pray for us, to care for us. He invites us to get past our reservations and simply do it. Asking for prayer should be as natural as singing a hymn when you're cheerful. So that's the first call. For those who are sick to resist the impulse to isolate and instead ask for others to be present. And the second call is for the community, of course, to go and do it. For some of us, that might be a natural response, but for others, it goes against so much of what our society tells us. In many Western societies, at least, we get the message that when somebody's going through a difficult time, the appropriate response is to sort of politely look the other way. You know what I mean? Somebody is sick and we just give them space. 
Somebody is hurting and we pretend not to notice. Protecting the privacy of others is sort of a cardinal virtue in many cultures. And so our reflex is to not risk intruding, to sort of stay away from those who might be struggling. But that is exactly the opposite of what James calls for here. Instead of persisting in isolation, we are to gather around those who are sick or hurting. We are to be a community where people agree not to look politely away, says Barbara Brown Taylor. A community where we see illness or hurt not as occasions for shame or fear, but as occasions to come together, to offer support, to pray. The same is true when it comes to guilt. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, James says. When you are ashamed of something you've done, don't stuff it down and keep it to yourself. Don't hide alone. Seek out someone in the church to confess it to and actually expect they will confess something back because really, who has nothing to confess? Pray for one another. We all stand in need. Do you see how far this is from the way of life ruled by envy, where everybody's a competitor for limited resources, limited honors, limited happiness? That way of life inevitably isolates. It encourages us to shrink back from one another. It keeps each of us alone, constantly struggling for the next elusive thing that might finally make us feel worthy. Instead, held in the care of the generous giver who declares all of us worthy, we draw close to one another, confident there is enough grace for all. Prayer is the glue that holds us together. It keeps drawing us back into one another, again and again. We don't always get exactly what we're praying for. You don't have to be in the praying business for long to see that. But in fact, when we pray together, when we invite others to pray for us, and when we pray for those in need, we do find something unspeakably precious. We find God's presence in the community, here and now. So please think of your part in the congregation in this way. You are part of a praying community. When you're in need, ask for prayer. Do it in a worship service or a study group meeting. Talk to a member of the congregation or talk to me. But don't follow that old impulse to simply keep it to yourself. And when someone asks for prayer, offer it. Don't worry if you don't have long, fancy petitions all worked out. The honest words that you use will be fine because your prayers are needed. You are part of this community, and that means praying for others. In a world that persistently isolates people, and often at their very most vulnerable times, prayer draws us together. And healing is there for all of us. You can miss this in the English translation, but when James says, pray for one another so that you might be healed, the you there is plural. Pray for one another those who are sick and those who are well, those who are burdened and those who are feeling light. Pray for one another, all of you, because in praying, in drawing together in relationship with the God who gives grace all the more, there's healing for all of us. See, James says, I know how to end a letter after all. Our generous God has given us one another, and that's more than enough.
Thanks be to God. Amen.